1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate podcast. I'm your co host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. On the show with us today, Hans Box. Hans, thanks for joining us today. How are you?
0: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: Nice to have you on the show. Before we get into it, here's a little bit about Hans. Hans is a principal of Box Wilson Equity and a senior director at Old Capital Lending. He has been directly involved in the acquisition, investment, and management of over two hundred and ninety million dollars in multifamily and self-storage assets since two thousand eight, and that's just amongst quite a few other accomplishments. So, with that being said, Hans, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do?
0: Sure, no problem. So, as you mentioned, um, kind of do I wear two hats? I, I with old capital lending, we are a multi, mainly a multifamily. Uh, mortgage broker, commercial mortgage broker out of Texas. We lend nationally because we do a lot of Fannie and Freddie work. Uh, we probably do one out of every four B and C apartment loans in the state of Texas. We did close to a billion dollars in originations last year. In fact, I think we did hit a billion dollars in originations last year. So wow. pretty good, pretty, pretty big um, lender here in the Texas market and then nationally. So we work with everyone and then also, I am a uh, co-founder of Box Wilson Equity. It was co-founded with my business partner, Doug Wilson, who lives in Denver. I live in Austin. Mm-hmm. And we raise funds and buy deals just like many of the people possibly listening to your podcast. We buy apartments. We also invest in self-storage, distressed debt, and mobile home parks, and, and uh, are looking at retail, actually. So we, we kind of go across the space, but multifamily is our bread and butter.
1: So you're a busy guy.
0: Uh, here and there, a little, a little busy here and there. Uh, but that, that's I, it keeps me keeps me going. Perfect. Great, thanks for that. So
2: today, I want to focus mostly on the lending and consulting piece of what you do with old capital lending. So, how does old capital support active real estate
0: investors? Sure. So obviously, we are uh, a lender, and 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 uh, sponsors come to us to get quotes and get loans for various types of multifamily properties. I would say our value add and kind of our niche though, is we work more with newer investors. Uh, we weren't necessarily going to work with somebody that, you know, has done 20 deals and owns 4,000 units. Um, usually those types of sponsors uh, have, have got their lenders and they call, call their lender direct every time. But we work with new newer borrowers that need a little, their handheld throughout the process or, or degree of it. Um, most of us at old capital own properties ourselves or are invested. In fact, I think all of us except one guy is um, actually sponsors in multifamily deals. So we sit on your side of the table. We understand what you're looking at. We understand, you know, uh, the view of multifamily from your side. We're not just a lender trying to sell you a loan. Um, So there's many times that we will uh, assist our borrowers in in making some decisions and we'll, we'll, you know, we don't underwrite deals for our borrowers, but we will definitely answer questions and do some side consulting and handholding throughout the process. Um, you know, for instance, we—I had a new borrower last year that was looking at a deal in a submarket in Dallas. That myself and Paul Peebles, who's the uh, one of the, is the head underwriter there at Old Capital, uh, we advised him not to move forward. Even though we would have loved to do the loan, we told him not to move forward because the submarket was a tough submarket, and it's not something that we thought he should try to bite off on his first deal so th- those kind of things is what we try to do with with our borrowers,
2: yeah, I mean, you even helped us when we were uh kind of dabbling in Detroit, and uh <laughs> you know you made the suggestion, hey, Kyle, I don't think it's the the brightest idea to start there. You know those deals are definitely a little bit more hairy, so i I appreciate that and and that's why
0: we we like to have that relationship with you guys. Uh Yep. Yeah. We we love to we love to advise, and you know, honestly, I just look at every deal like if I was doing it myself. Mm-hmm. What I want to do this, and and I try to advise you from that paradigm and that perspective. How
2: far do you get into it as far as advising other uh, investors? Are, are there specific things that you look for when you're advising?
0: Um, it, it's things like we mentioned. I biting off more than you can chew on your first deal, um, or, or there's too much hair on the deal the first time. Stuff like that. Um submarkets, certain sub markets, we as I mentioned, we we uh push new investors not to not to try to go there day one. You know, I, I think your first deal should be something that is somewhat stabilized, um, that has some cash flow day one to kind of protect you as you learn learn the uh learn the process of owning a multifamily deal. It's always a lot more work than than you expect, even if you have a third-party management company. Um you know, I, I tend to try to keep first-time borrowers away from floating or short-term debt. I, I typically would want a first-time borrower to get a long-term fixed-rate loan to protect themselves. Um, you know, There's nothing wrong with short-term floating or bridge debt, but it needs to be used at the right time for the right deal by the right borrower, and they need to know what they're getting into. So I mean, those are kind of the 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 main things I think I would I would warn new investors about in terms of lending, on, on a deal. Can you explain uh, floating and bridge debt? Sure, sure. So floating means floating rate; it might adjust monthly based on the LIBOR or something, and some spread on top of that. Sure. Um, and typically, floating is short term and bridge debt, and there also can be fixed bridge debt, and it could be short fixed short term bridge debt, but. Long story short, what typically all of those are are they are, quote, a bridge for uh, purchasing a property, then you fixing it, and then putting long term debt on top of it. So the idea is is that you would be buying a deal that isn't supported or can't be lent on by a normal bank or Fannie or Freddie. Fannie and Freddie and most banks want the deals to be stabilized to some degree. Now, banks, it's bank by bank situation, but Fannie and Freddie, which is where we do the majority of our business they require that uh, the deals be stabilized. That doesn't mean there can't be value add to the deal. That just means that, that they need to have some sort of cash flow, some sort of debt service coverage ratio in order for Fannie and Freddie to lend on it. And so when, the, when a property doesn't, uh, I guess, qualify for that, then well, what happens is we need to take that to uh, a bridge type loan, which then bridges the gap until you can get to Fannie or Freddie. That's the okay. idea. And
2: where can people get in trouble when it comes to a bridge loan?
0: Uh, well, floating, floating rate, if you don't put an interest rate cap on it. Um, so if for some reason, interest rates spiked uh, and you didn't underwrite to uh, take into account that spike, you, know, you could suddenly be out of cash flow and not be able to support or even not be able to support your debt payments. Um, the biggest problem I see with it is that if you get into, say, a, a 24-month bridge loan with maybe an option to extend 12 months or something like that, you might have a gun at your head in, in two years or three years to refinance out of that loan. And if, you, if there has been a recession or something hit between the time you bought the deal and this loan coming due, and you haven't added the value that you thought you were going to add, then suddenly you have you know, a possible maturity default issue with your loan. And then if you can't refinance or you can sell it, but you can't sell enough to get your loan back because typically these bridge bridge deals are pretty high LTVs. They're like 80, 85% sometimes. Then you can be in real trouble as a new borrower. So that's why you've, you've got to have some experience, I believe, in getting into this bridge debt because uh, you pretty much have to guarantee you're going to add that value by the end of the short-term Short-term loan, or you're going to get yourself into trouble. So that that's why I I I push new borrowers to stay with long-term debt on the first deal.
2: Yep, agreed. You mentioned debt service coverage ratio. Can you touch upon that a little bit?
0: Sure, sure. It's it's a it's a term you'll hear thrown around in all lending. It, it it's it's just simply your um your your cash flow for the year, your net operating income. Divided by your annual debt service payments, then that always includes principal. A lot of new borrowers think, "Oh, well, my, the debt service coverage ratio is great because I I got an interest only loan." Mm-hmm. And, but when when a lender looks at debt service coverage, they look at it as if it's already amortizing. So a lot of these Fannie and Freddie deals will be interest only for one, two, maybe three years. Um, but when they're looking at the debt service coverage ratio to qualify the deal, they assume principal is already being paid, a 30-year amortizing principal. So what the lender wants on a debt service coverage ratio is a buffer between your net operating income, in other words, the income you get annually from the deal, um, over their annual debt service. So a 125, 1.25 debt service coverage ratio means a 25% buffer for the lender. In other words, they're, they're covered by 25%. So that's typically is a 1.25 is what lenders look for, banks and Fannie and Freddie. That's high level. Got it. And it just
2: makes sure that you're able to pay, pay your debt service on on the building.
0: Exactly. They're, all they do is they just want some sort of a, uh, a buffer or protection for themselves. So they won't lend on um, a deal that has, say, a, a debt service coverage ratio of 1.15. To them, that's just that's too tight. Got it.
2: And so with bridge debt, they do not have a debt service coverage ratio, do they?
0: Um, some do. Yes. Okay. It, it totally depends on the lender. Depends on the bank. So banks will do bridge loans. Debt funds will do bridge loans. Fannie dust lenders will do bridge loans and they all have their different rules and what they're comfortable with because the, the, there is no set box for bridge. It all depends on the lender themselves and what they're comfortable with. So unfortunately, you know, it's a deal by deal basis. On Got those it.
2: Okay. So as a mortgage broker, Can you explain how that works a little bit? Do you have specific lenders that you reach out to? Do they, are they all in specific markets? So depending on the deal that's brought to your desk, do you reach out to a specific lender or is it kind of, Hey guys, this is what I've got. And
0: then you get the quotes back. So typically what we do is we have a very strong relationship with a handful of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac lenders. So I'm talking from the agency side, which is agency is Fannie and Freddie. Um, we, we have a very tight relationship that we do hundreds of millions of dollars with of work of, um, of loans with these lenders. And then when you bring me a deal, I look at the deal and then I look at the location of the deal, use a borrower, what the deal looks like. Um, and then we'll pick one of those lenders that we think would best be a best fit. So even though Fannie and Freddie, everyone thinks Fannie and Freddie lending is kind of a commodity and they're all the same, doesn't matter what dust lender or what. Freddie Lender, you take it to. Uh, that's not true. There are <clears throat> lenders that prefer different property types. There are lenders that will uh, do something that's more risky, but will charge you a higher interest rate or charge you, you know, a higher origination fee, things like that. So it really depends on the deal. And so that's kind of where our value add is: is other than just helping you get through the process and helping you look at the deal and, and understanding all the all the gotchas um, and helping you prepare for a loan. We also pick the right lender for the right deal. Because the key, number one key is obviously we want to pick a lender that's going to close. So we will pick the one that we think is most likely to close. In other words, we'll get you on that horse day one. We'll always have a backup. We'll know who we may go to. But typically we are going to pick the the lender that we know would most likely close in this deal. Because if you don't close, everything else is kind of irrelevant.
2: Right, right. Okay, so since you have so much experience on both sides of the coin, what's a different, or what is different at this present moment versus 2008 when the market crashed?
0: Um, I think it's fundamentals. Um, you know, lenders are staying within their box and they're sticking to their DSCR and loan-to-value limits. You know, in, in the Fannie and Freddie world, it's five debt service codes ratio, as we spoke about, loan-to-value max 80%. And right now, because everyone probably knows, that's listening to this, cap rates have compressed, especially where you guys live, and I mean they have here in Austin too. But you know, we're sitting in the fives and sixes for C properties sometimes. And um, so, what's happening is is that the loan to values have gone down. So a lender like Fannie or Freddie will lend on a lesser of a one two five debt service coverage ratio or eighty percent of purchase price high level. I'm just keeping it simple. Mm -hmm. And we are being limited right now by debt service coverage because the pricing is so high on these deals. The cap rates are compressed, which means prices are high. And so I don't see Fannie and Freddie lenders and our lenders stretching on deals. They are sticking in their box. They're staying within that. And the loan to values are coming down. So typically, you know, what I'm seeing now is low seventies on our quotes. Uh, 70% 70% of purchase price, you know, in three years ago, we were getting 80% of purchase price plus rehab. So it was much higher loan to values because the prices were cheaper. And I think back in 08, 07, 08, that, that was different. Lenders weren't sticking by that. I know CNBS lenders were doing 95. I even heard of like over a hundred percent loan to value. In other words, you'd get money at closing to go do rehab. It really made no sense. And so that is the main difference. That's not to say that I don't think that prices are very high right now. And I think you have to be very careful when you're buying. Um, but I think the big difference is that lenders aren't going crazy right now. And they're high you know, they're they're doing a lot of vetting of, of sponsors, vetting of borrowers. Um, and they're not really going outside their box. They're being careful. Okay. That's the difference. That's the main difference.
2: Yep. So you mentioned agency debt already and Fannie and Freddie. Can you explain a little bit further what Fannie
0: and Freddie is and what the other sources of debt are? Sure. So Fannie and Freddie are pseudo government entities. They are not technically not government owned, but they're government governed, I guess. Um, and, and really the way they work is, is that Fannie and Freddie will uh, guarantee these loans. So they don't actually make the loans, they guarantee them. The government guarantees these loans. So our lenders will go out. Um, there's only a certain amount of lenders throughout the United States that are granted the right to be able to do Fannie and Freddie loans. And that's who we work directly with. And Fannie and Freddie guarantee the loans, um, but the the loans in themselves are still just mortgage bonds that are bought you know, on the, on the secondary market on Wall Street or, or wherever. So they're, they're bundled into into tranches of bonds and they're bought by large institutional investors. And so the reason that they're typically better loans is because the government guarantees or backs the loans, then that means the terms are better. Interest rate's a little bit lower because the risk is lower. Amortization's better. 30-year versus a bank, which might be 20 or 25, is better because the risk is lower. So that that's what, when you hear agency loan, that's what that's tossed around. is Fannie and Freddie, government guaranteed to a degree, and better terms. Then you have... Other types of loans, which are typically banks, local banks or regional banks or even national banks, and these are what you call balance sheet lenders. They actually they actually make the loans off their own balance sheets. They have a they have a loan on their balance sheets for your XYZ apartment property, and their terms are typically not quite as good as Danny and Freddie because they don't have the government guaranteeing the loans. So the rates might be you know. I would say anywhere from 25 to 50 BIPs to a point higher in rates, amortization for local banks. If I went and bought an apartment deal here in Austin might only be 20 or 25 year where I could get 30 year with Fannie and Freddie. Um, And the term isn't as long. Typically it's maybe a three, five or maybe seven year with a local bank. You get 10 year, you can get 10 year, 10 year balloon, 12 year balloon with Fannie and Freddie all day. In fact, Fannie will do anything. They'll do up to thirty year if you want to pay the interest rate difference. So it, it's it's just not quite as flexible, and and uh, they're not as long term loans.
2: What would be the reason for a sponsor to go with a local bank versus agency debt?
0: Sure. So there's plenty of reasons. One is the bridge that we spoke about earlier. Um, Fannie and Freddie. Let's say you're doing a um, you know a two million dollar deal. Um, but it has a lot of hair on it. 70% occupied. You're an experienced uh, investor um, and uh, you have good net worth and liquidity. Well, a bank will lend on that. Fannie and Freddie will not lend on something that's 70% occupied because in Fannie and Freddie's world, the deal needs to be stabilized and having some sort of cash flow. A bank though, if I was looking at a deal here in Austin, would look at that deal and say, okay, that's in my backyard yes, it's 70% occupied, but I have a multifamily sponsor that has some experience and has net worth and liquidity that qualifies. We'll give him the loan um, because we know he's going to fix it up. And they'll lend. They may, say, lower their debt service coverage ratio. We affirmation, we had mentioned uh, 125. Maybe they'll lower it to like 1.10 because they, they will also look at, say, my tax returns in my W twos or or if if I had a job or things like that. And they'll take that into account and say, okay, the cash flow in this deal, you know, the the property's only generating a one 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 one, one oh debt service coverage ratio. But if I add in the sponsor's other cash flow, what they call is global cash flow, then they'll get a they'll get a, a debt service that they can handle. So banks are more flexible is your answer. And I would use them for a deal that has hair on it or that's too small. Fannie and Freddie's Basically, a million and up in loan proceeds, and so there's plenty of smaller deals out there. They're great deals that Sandy and Freddie won't do just due to size, and that's when you want to go to a, a smaller lender like a like a local bank. And typically, local
2: banks are recourse loans, right? Versus agency debt, where it is typically non-recourse.
0: Correct, and I, you know I can certainly go into that. It, you know, recourse is obviously is that the lender. If you had to sell the deal and couldn't pay off your loan, the lender can basically reach into your pockets and take your personal assets to make up their difference. Uh, Non-recourse means that they can't do that. In other words, you can just toss them the keys and walk away and they can't come after you, assuming you didn't commit fraud or negligence or things like that. Um, One thing I would like to clarify for your listeners is is that even though you may be signing, you may be uh, getting a non-recourse loan like Fannie or Freddie you still guarantee it. You still have to sign on. And a lot of new, new investors think, well, why am I signing on a loan that's not recourse? Or why am I guaranteeing a loan that's not recourse? You still have to, because Fannie and Freddie want you to put your name down and basically make a promise that you're going to take care of this property and operate it per the loan covenants. Um, and they still qualify you because they want to know that the person signing a loan has the wherewithal, net worth, liquidity to step in and save the deal if needed. So even though they are relying on the property almost 100% to to protect their collateral, uh, to protect their loan, they still want you as a guarantor to be qualified because they want you to be able to go in and save the deal. They don't want to own it. In other words, they want you to come in and 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 help out. So you still have to guarantee non-recourse.
2: Got it. And I did not prep you for this question, but does agency debt typically perform better than local bank debt? As far as the properties that have been lended on
0: um, what, what do you mean perform better
2: well so I think I read something back in 8 where agency debt there was only a one percent default rate for agency debt whereas you know local bank debt there was definitely a higher default rate
0: you know I I'll plead ignorance on that I don't know what the statistics are right now um, I would guess that agency is most likely still uh, a lower default because one it requires more experienced sponsors to they don't lend on anything that isn't already stabilized and cash flowing. So most likely, yes it, that 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 would that would be true.
2: Got it. In your opinion, what is the one thing that makes or breaks a real estate investment in multifamily?
0: Well, besides the obvious, um, buying right or not paying too much. And so I don't I don't want to give you that obvious answer. It's management. Um, I've always said that it's if you have a good property management company and in turn they hire a good property manager it's amazing you know you know that how people don't think about that when you're you buy a ten million dollar apartment deal you're buying a ten million dollar business yep and then you don't vet the, the person that is sitting on site managing your deal that need, that's imperative I've seen great managers that are you know that are paid forty fifty thousand dollars a year save 15 million dollar properties and And so it is all about, in my opinion, that local on-site manager and then in turn that regional and/or management company that employs that manager uh, it's that's that's everything to a deal everything
2: great so I think Lolita now is going to take us into our final four questions.
1: all right, Hans, let's dive right in. What is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you cannot do without
0: well in in my opinion it's it's not necessarily a, a hard tool. It's networking. Um, you know, everyone's heard the quote, your, your, uh, network is your net worth. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's all about networking in real estate. It's an incredibly small, uh, ecosystem. And I run into, you know, you run into people all the time that, that, uh, you, you've, you bumped into at various conferences and, and meetups and things like that. And, you know, I couldn't have gotten anywhere in, in my career, without the network in real estate. It's it's still a little bit of a good old boys network to a degree here and there. So it's always good to know people. I
1: mm-hmm. agree. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far? And what is the main takeaway for our listeners?
0: Sure. So this is a little bit of a story and it's kind of how I got started with my company, Box Wilson Equity, my, my, um, with my partner. Um, one of the first... Actually, probably the first multifamily deal I invested in was a deal in Dallas. You know, I was a more or less a passive investor in the deal. I didn't have any control. Let's say I didn't have any control in the deal. Um, And I cashed out my IRA to invest in it, quit my job, was, you know, getting into multifamily real estate full time. So um, it it was an interesting time. This is about, you know, 2009, 2010. So we bought a deal really cheap. Obviously, it was a good time to buy. At the time, though, it was very hard to operate these properties because everything was still in distress. And long story short, I put a basically probably two-thirds of my net worth into this deal. And, um, and the deal wasn't going well. And the sponsor, the person in charge, didn't uh, respond to us as passives in our, our prodding to, hey, let's maybe change management companies. This doesn't seem to be going right. We're maybe over rehabbing the deal, our occupancy is not going up. You know, if you looked at the valuation of the deal, we were actually negative and based on our investment at that time because of the, the occupancy and the NOI at the time. And long story short, uh, what happened in that deal is I was pretty vocal and so was this other passive investor in the deal who happens to be my business partner now, Doug Wilson. And we were pretty vocal. And long story short, we got voted in by the passive investors to take over the deal. And we, nice. uh, we didn't kick the sponsor out because we can't kick him out, but we took over control. So we hired a new management company. Um, she did an incredible job. We then, uh, we turned it around, got over 90% occupied. We sold the deal for in 2012 or so. At, at a time was record in that market and record price in that market. Now.
1: Wow.
0: If I look back on it, I wish I still owned it, (laughs) (laughs) but nobody knew the cap rates and it would be where they are. So it kind of kicked us off and got us started. So from that is where our company got started. And we had, there was kind of critical mass of investors in that deal that appreciated what myself and and Doug did. And they asked us, Hey, you guys ever going to work together and do a a deal together? And that's how we got started. And Mm -hmm. it kind of, it lit a, fire under us and gave us, you know, uh, an idea that, Hey, let's, let's look at doing something. So we started small and, uh, went from there. And, um, you know, my takeaway from that is vet your sponsors and learn how to, before you just jump and put a hundred K in a deal, vet the deal, vet the sponsors, vet the legal agreements, all of that. I mean, I learned so much through that. I mean, in, in my case it was trial by fire, but you know, in, in um, and what I love for your listeners' take away is, is that you've got to spend time analyzing these deals and vetting these sponsors. Um, I see people all the time that will literally spend months trying to figure out the best TV or car to buy, but they won't spend the same amount of time investing 100k into, into, a, into an apartment deal. They see you know, a pretty PowerPoint presentation and, and beautiful returns, and they're in. And, and that's where you really have to be careful. Um, so I, I'm actually working on a training around that right now.
1: Wow, great advice. That's very true. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level?
0: Well, um, you know, I I'm kind of doing that now. I've, I've joined a, a couple networking groups that are where I get around, uh, uh, and they they're it's men specific, but it's just the way it was formed. But it's where I'm getting around guys that are that are at my level or above, and most of them are above. And you get into that kind of environment, and it it makes you feel like you've done nothing. And so when, when you get in an environment like that and get around guys that are just pushing you, you know, incessantly and, and you, you, see that, you know, you think you've done decently well and then you get around people like that. It's just, that's, that's really, I think what people need to do is get, get around, you know, be the dumbest guy in the room um, and, and get around smart people. And that's what I'm trying to do with myself too.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. great. I mean, that's one of my favorite quotes is you're the average of the five people you hang around with the most, right? Exactly. I Exactly. Mean, Tim Ferriss and Jim Rohn say that. And uh, if you are the dumbest guy in the room, then <laughs> you're going to benefit from that, certainly. Exactly.
0: I, I always want to feel intimidated. I do in this group. So. <laughs> awesome.
1: And finally, Hans, where can people find out more about you?
0: Sure. So you can go to our website. Uh, it's uh, www.boxwilson.com. Www.box, I mean, find me on LinkedIn, just other, under Hans Box. I mean, I, nobody has that name, so you can probably just <laughs> Google that. Um, or just email me at uh, hbox@boxwilson.com.
1: Great. Great. Awesome. Extremely educational. Financials and lending is one of those topics where it's so vital for all of us to really understand. So thank you for taking the time to break it down and simplify it for us all.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with you guys.
1: Perfect. Appreciate your time, Han, and uh, thanks for being on the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Hans. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Passive Income through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.